Get a Job in Tech, episode 105. Thank you very much for listening to the podcast. And I want to continue on some of the stuff I talked about in the previous episode, which was how to get started in tech. So you work somewhere and you want to get started in tech. So I'll just put it to you this way. If you're um, if you live in another country, say you're not American, let's just say, right? And you want to work in the United States, let's just say. You do the same thing as people do in the U.S. Meaning you put the resume out there and you put your, like in the previous episode, I think it was 102, I believe it was, where how to create a resume, right? You do the same way you have people do. So the thing about it is a little bit of, Something extra on that is this. If you're, say, from, you're, say, from India, let's just say, right? See if you can't fake or develop a British accent, okay? The reason you do that is, now, of course, you're going to have to stick with it by default, right? Because it's going to have to be your, you know, um, your calling card, if you will, right, for the, for the future. But if you can, if you can learn a, a British accent, that would really help you go a long way, actually, because it would mask the fact that um, maybe your English isn't good, right? But if you just speak with a, a British accent, the people in the U.S. are going to look at you a little differently. Like, oh, wow, you know, it's like you're smarter. I don't know what it is, but they they seem to think you're smarter for some reason if you have a, a British accent. I, I mean, I've heard that before, so... The same goes for people in the continent of Africa, right? If you can do the same, um, if you can fake or learn a British accent, you're gonna go. You're gonna help your chances of securing a job a lot, a lot more. And that goes really with any country uh, that is not in the United States. Uh, just you know, learn a, learn how to develop a, a British accent, and it'll go along, a long way for you. Okay. So having your strategy up, having your strategy in place, it's nothing more than this. Just have a piece of paper and write down what do you want, what do you want to make, you know. Um, And you know that by learning what you make now. The money you make now, you say, okay, make, let's say you make 500 a week or whatever it is, right? Take that, right? And um, you want to make, you know, 600, right, or whatever. What jobs? What jobs help you do that? Maybe you want to double it. What job? What jobs do that? The biggest misconception about IT is that once you get started, or it, you know, it's hard to get a job in IT, but it's really easy afterwards, uh, which is not even anything close to the truth whatsoever. So it's actually a little different. So it's it's easy to get a job if you have a work ethic and you can demonstrate. You're willing to put the work in, right? Employers will hire you more so for potential than they will for what you've done. Case in point, two individuals have the same skill set. They, uh, the one has a degree, the other one doesn't, and the one with the degree has zero experience. You know, meaning they've not done anything. Maybe they have a computer science degree, right? Let's say everything being equal on the 
uh, in, in the States, let's say, not for other countries. But both of them, are one has a computer science degree, the other one doesn't. They're the same age. And uh, the computer science degree person basically goes, okay, show me what you've done as far as like your, your project, right? And they say, well, I've just done my basic project. And they're like, okay, well, that's good. Have you done anything outside of your, you know, your college? Not really, right? Then you have another person who is self-taught. Um, what is it? C++, Java, but they have a project. They've created actually something. Maybe they made their own app or whatever, right? So they're able to talk it through. They're able to talk through a solution, right? So usually, so on those cases, right, I mean, they sometimes they do still say that the person has to prove because they, that's a little check mark they have to have some cases. But a lot of times they, they'll take the person that has the knowledge over the person with the degree because they've demonstrated that they've actually done it. And, you know, call it the marketplace, if you will. That's the word they like to throw around, right? Um, the marketplace where you've, you've shown that you can, you can have a billing, meaning you can you know, build a product or you can create, you know, uh, a market or whatever it is you make, an app or whatever, right? So that's, uh, that's on that. So a little bit about me, right? You may not know this. I used to work in the semiconductor industry. So I used to work for a company called Lama Research. And my job, you probably have seen in your computer. And inside your computer, you have like a, a, a chip, a wafer, right? Or a chip, really. It's a chip. And that chip is part of a bigger, um, they call them wafers, right? It's just a wafer. So on the wafer, you have about 500 or more than 500, it's quite a bit more than that actually, but more than 500 um, die or you know chips basically, right? So that chip becomes the processor in your computer for all those who don't know. And the, and the process or the technology behind it, right, if, if you can imagine. So what happens is it's called um, uh, PECVD, right, or copper, depo copper deposition, because I worked in the copper, uh, copper, depo co copper deposition uh, de fab or department, really, because they wore the bunny suits with the, the orange, uh, not orange, um, copper, yeah, copper-colored uh, bunny suits, right? And you go in the fab, and you have this big tool, right? So the tool, what happens is the wafers. They're like these uh, shiny wafers, right? Um, have you ever seen the, the movie with uh, the X-Men? And it's where Magneto has this, uh, he's floating on this disc, right? That is, that's kind of what a wafer looks, looks like, right? The silicon wafer. And anyway, so what happens is they take these wafers, and it's got this hoop, which is like a, a robot, right? An overhead robot. And it brings it to the tool. And this tool is probably, it's the big machine, right? It, it's like uh, 10 feet by 25 feet, something like that. 15, yeah, 10 by maybe 25 feet. So there's about usually 25 wafers um, per hoop, right? And what happens is that that hoop will load the wafers into the tool. In this case, it was a, uh, it's a Sabre, called a Sabre, uh, copper deposition tool, basically, right? So the, t the 
Silicon wafers come in, right? And sometimes they go, so the first step is usually like, let's say it has this robot, right? There's a, a robot that has a Brooks robot, picks it up and puts it into the uh, etch, makes an etch, it etches it first, right? Basically what it does is creates a an outer, uh, an outer um, film or etches the out basically of it. So you know, same right. So um, what happens is when you uh, when you plate a wafer of copper, it'll just like a penny. It'll it'll migrate over the wafer uh, over the wafer. Okay. So in order to solve that, what we do is we we etch the wafer itself. It's like you know a really small etch around the wafer. So from there, what happens is they um, they um, wash it basically, right? Dry it, uh, and then um, send it to the annealing chamber. So now, obviously, you're part of like a six-part process, right? In this in this wafer. So you can imagine um, that's the process. So uh, I think I'm skipping one. Oh yeah, I'm skipping one. So it comes in the wafer. So it comes from the hoop goes to the Brooks robot, it then goes to the etch, right? Right, it just etches around the wafer, right? Then, yeah, that I'm missing a step, right? Then it goes to the uh, copper deposition. So what happens is, if you can imagine, they have this big copper anode, it's just this giant, it's like maybe 30 pounds, something like that, and it's in this bath of, of like copper sulfate, basically, right? And it's like a blue color, because that's what cop copper is, and it's liquid form. Um, anyway, so they put this wafer uh, inside the bath, right, with the copper. What happens is, if you can imagine, you have this, um, if you can imagine in your mind like a plate and you turn it upside down and you stick it in the water, right? So just imagine you have voltage, like a positive and negative voltage going through that wafer. So that's essentially what it is. What's going on is this. You have the copper ions in the bath that are attracting um, to to the the, the um, substrate. I don't know if that's the right word, but they're tra attracting to the wafer, right? Okay. So uh, there, there's other processes in this. Let me let me tell you about the other processes. So some of the other processes are called litho. So lithography, right? Basically, what they do is, if you can imagine a house. Or a building, giant building, right? Like a ten-story building. So a wafer. What happens is the silicon wafer comes in, and they build like a foundation. They usually put tungsten down on it. But then from there, they build like uh, stories, like you know, first floor, second floor, etc. So uh, what happens is in this case, it like um, copper depth, uh, you know, copper plates it right. So um, it plates it with copper, then it goes to like another section, like a kneel, or not a kneel, but a uh, litho, litho, um, lithography section, like another toilet that does that. What it does is it etches um, little, like if you will, runes, right, on that on that wafer. So what you have is, if you if you do it a bunch of times, so basically you, this is a six step process or more, and then you're just one of that part. So what happens is it comes in, it gets 
uh, plated, then it goes to local. And then it maybe goes to CMC, which is like a buffer, kind of buffs it out, makes it flat, if you will, right? Uh, and then it comes back to you, okay? Um, what's, what's going to happen is this. What they're doing is they're making um, like first floor through, let's say, 10 floor, right? And when they put litho in there, what they're doing is they're creating like a room, right? So um, every time they create a room, you take the copper and you fill in the room. You're filling in the room, right? So you probably have seen like ones and zeros and pluses and all that stuff. That's really kind of all it is in a nutshell, is where you have these different uh, floors, right? So the one are on off basically, right? All it is is just there's a voltage at the end result where the voltage goes through the wafer and it turns like floor one has um, a, um, uh, you know, let's say floor one has, you know, a window on the left, let's say, right? And floor two has a one on the right. And when you send a voltage to it, the whatever it's supposed to do, what happens is it turns on floor one's light, but it turns off floor two's light. So that's one and zero, right? On and off. So you can imagine doing that. You know, it's it's way more than ten times better, though, right? More than sorry, more than ten floors. It's a lot, but um, if you know, if you don't understand it, obviously it sounds like I don't understand it, but I kind of do actually. Um, I did more of the um, the tool part, right? So my job was to make sure to train the or to teach the robot or teach the book robot like a place. It's called PLC. So what you do is you you teach it a you uh, teach it and you store the position. So what happened is it comes in the the poop, picks up the wafer, um, suction on, right like that, brings the wafer out, then. Uh, Puts it on the um, place where it etches it. Okay, robot um, releases suction, comes back and waits, right, and does all of the things. Uh, and then it plates it, or it moves it to the plating section after that. So, the interesting thing about all that, right, or why, why am I telling you all that is, in in that that kind of got me started into the IT field, uh, because on the tool, they build these things called recipes. Recipe is nothing more than a set of instructions that will um, plate the wafer, if you will. It'll it'll go through this process. It'll etch it, and then it'll plate it, and then it goes to like an annealing chamber. Uh, annealing chamber, what what an annealing chamber is? I know I'm gonna get in the weeds here, but I'll tell you anyways. What an annealing chamber is? It's like a compactor, if you will, right? It uses um um uh what is it? Helium? Is it helium gas? I forget, whatever. But basically what it does is compresses the quote-unquote um, floors, right? So they, they they mash up together, right? So you, there's no gaps there um, in the process, right? Um, anyways, so during that time, right, I learned um, I learned about this program called uh, QNX. So QNX is like an operating system, okay? And um, they use actually in cars. Probably don't know that, but they use those in cars, and they use it on those tools too. It's like a, it's a way to interface. So you just, um, I think a lot of companies that have, uh, so we had like pumps, we had spin controllers, like Valdo spin controllers. We had pumps. We had, um, uh, I forget this the name of the company, but 
Kionics, I think, or K-Y-O-C-E-R-A, something like that. What it does is it's, um, it's like an optical uh, scanner, right? So it, it scans like, a, like a, a bottle, right? And if it gets to a certain level of water or a chemical, if you will, it'll turn on or turn off like a pneumatic valve, and that'll do something very interesting. So it'll, um, for instance, in our case, we had what we call a bath. So the bath was like the solution that you played the wafers with, right? So we had like gamma, ASUP, and SUP. And uh, they have different, you know, chemical properties to them. But when you play the wafer, what you're doing essentially is you're uh, – those three chemicals, they're, they have a reason why they're mixed. So then you apply a voltage, and it reacts a certain way. So uh, remember when I was talking earlier with the fills in the um, – the fills in the uh, floors. So what will happen is it will actually, um, it will fill in those little rooms, if you will, right? And the and these chemicals and then the voltage applied is kind of how it does it, right? So you've probably heard of like, uh, when you know, you probably heard on the TV like nano angstroms, right? Like 0.01 or whatever it is now, right? So that's like the width of like your, of your, um, your, your ditch, if you will, or your your via, they call it via or gate, I guess, if you will, where the copper uh, connects to the to the next floor or the bottom floor of the sec or the or the upper floor. So anyway, so from there, and I worked in that uh, area, I worked in the fab, right? And it's interesting because we had pass down meetings, and I I could never, I didn't know who what people looked like uh, because they all had their bunny suits on, right? And it was kind of interesting because they had a pass down meeting. And um, everybody there, like, you have, like, PhDs in chemistry and all this other stuff, right? And your voice is heard. Like, you're just, like, one of the team, basically, right? Whatever you uh, can think about. So the um, shifts on that, right, were four on, three off, three on, four off, right? So that's it. So I had worked four days of 12 hour, four 12-hour days, and then I was off three full days, and then I worked three 12-hour days, and I was off for four days. And that, well, that was a really, really good job, actually. That's the kind of, um, that's the kind of schedule that is really beneficial for, for everybody in that matter. You would never need to take a vacation uh, because you would never, never want to because you have four days off every week, really, or every other week. Um, so it was, it was fantastic. So anyway, so from there, I, I went – Overseas, so I worked as a um, satcom technician. So we, um, what do we do? We, how do I say this? So we basically um, linked up with satellites in space, right? And we got the data from the satellites in space, and then we passed it along to the whoever the customer is, right? Uh, weather data, stuff like that, right? Okay. And then after that, I worked uh, in the Middle East. Uh, and I work as a micro technician. So a micro technician is, you've probably seen it. So you're driving, next time you go outside, right, and drive somewhere, uh, when you, on the highway, you're going to see, like, these cell phone towers, right? So um, essentially that's what I worked on. So the the cell phone towers are, like, uh, a couple hundred feet, maybe maybe 100 feet, something like that. So on it you have a, you have a parabolic antenna, right? So it looks like a... Uh, a sideways drum, right? It just looks like a drum. And what's going on is 
um, the smaller the dish, okay, the smaller the dish, the higher the frequency, right, and the shorter uh, the the, the shorter the path, so the distance from the other uh, microwaves, right. So, for instance, you might have it, it looks small, right. So you can, if you look at it, and you say, oh, it's a small dish, right, parabolic antenna. You're going to know that it's probably like, you know, less than maybe five miles away, right? If it's really small, the smaller uh, the dish, the shorter the the space in between each um, site or uh, relay, if you will, right? Micro relay. Um, the bigger the dish, the lower the frequency, like C band or uh, is it Q band? Yeah, usually Q band. The lower the frequency the longer the distance, so meaning the greater the space between uh, the two sites. So in my case, I had one, I had four sites, right? So I had two end, two, um, let's see, uh, end points basically, right? And then an, and two repeaters in the middle. And my job was just to make sure that the signal is going through all of them. I mean, it was easy, right? But uh, there was, there was problems with it in some cases because you have rain fade that does affect the signal strength. You have um, fog will affect it, right? Um, sometimes even we had like um, truck trucks, right? If they're they're hauling something, maybe it's a mountain, right, or a hill. Let's say it'll it'll cause the the disturbance in the in the signal, right? And typically they have uh, they have those everywhere, right? By the way, you've seen them, right? And usually. It was, it's like an OC3 or o OC, uh, usually it's an OC3 or OC192, right? Depends on, uh, depends on the technology. So a lot of companies make them. Andrews, I think, makes the antennas. Alcatel, uh, Harris, there's several different vendors that make uh, the microwave antennas. Um, there's a couple actually certifications for those. One is the CWNA, CWNA. Uh, like certified wireless network administrator, right? And that's a that's a big one. So they have also a um, CWNE, I think, which is like certified wireless network expert or whatever. And um, that you get hired mostly uh, if you work in that field, right? You're mostly doing stuff like mm, peak, not peak and pull, that's satellite. But mo mostly what you're doing is you're making sure that the signal strength is good throughout the throughout the repeaters throughout the sites. You're monitoring. You're just seeing any um, Bart's head display. So you're looking for anom anomalies. Um, it's really easy. You just set it up and it goes right. If there's any problem, you kind of know what what's going on. The reason they use microwave, right? Okay, I'll tell you why they use microwave. It's cheaper than fiber. So fiber, I don't know what fiber costs, but it. Um, I know it's definitely. Uh, a microwave is cheaper than fiber. I know that. For instance, you have mountains, right? Mountaintops uh, pointing down to an end site, right? And you're trying to get, you know, uh, bandwidth there, right? Through there, right? Basically. And so to run fiber, you're talking, you go through those mountains, that's crazy, right? Um, all that cost for that? No, no, no. So let's just run, run microwave, right? And, um, you know, you are limited in the amount of bandwidth you can transmit, right? Like I said, OC, OC3 is like 155 megabits per second back and forth. And at the endpoints, right, you have um, 
well, I forget what it was, but um, it oh yeah, I know what it is. It's a radio. It's a radio device. What it does is convert radio uh, to I/O, which is you know used for fiber, right? Now the interesting thing about all that is this: anytime you see like a microwave tower, right, you're gonna see this. Um, it's like this long black tube, right? And it's gonna point to this little building, right? That's your waveguide. So your waveguide is essentially how the signal gets out to the antenna and goes over the, you know, through the air basically to the other side. Um, so that's sometimes that'll get actually wet. So what they have is they have the dehumidifiers inside the little shelter basic thing that um, make sure there's no uh, moisture, right? Because that'll cause a problem as well. Usually. Usually, um, like cell phone companies all use this technology, by the way, now. Uh, who else uses this technology? A lot of your uh, temporary uh, sites, so like maybe there's a, an event, there is a, um, uh, like a concert, right? Sometimes they'll set up like a, a relay, like a microwave site, uh, like bandwidth, like maybe they need to have a cell phone coverage, right? So they'll bring in like a uh, microwave, dish or microwave attached to the cell phone tower and that'll bring it from some somewhere else. Sometimes you'll see these go on the road in like rural areas. Um, so you, for miles and miles and miles, you don't, you don't have a signal, a, a satellite or a, a, a cell phone signal. So you see like the cell phone tower and it'll have like this parabolic antenna on it because it looks like a drum. And that's how they get that the bandwidth to that, that site. Usually at these uh, sites, they'll have like generators. It's like fenced-in, right? They'll have generators. Um, they'll have um, yeah, backup power, basically, right? And they have usually a lot of alerts. Like it's um, if the door opens, there's an alert that's sent out. Um, like a like a trigger, SMTP or SMNP trigger, whatever. Um, they'll have like if it goes down or the the generator turns on, there's a signal. There's like a, a trigger. Um, you know, through the signal, and it sends out to whoever is on site or who's on call, and they go out and look at it. Okay, this is what's on, right? From there, I went and I studied in I India, actually. So I lived in uh, I lived in Bombay, and I studied CCIS. I didn't get my CCIS. I don't I don't I don't have it, right? But I did study for it. I didn't get it, of course. Um, I, th I think really I didn't have like a, the systems administration background back then, and I think that was my major hindrance, right? So I saw the dollar figure, right? I saw the dollar figure. So, oh, yeah, I'll just get this CCI. It's too easy, right? I'll get it. Not knowing that that's not really the case, right? So <laughs> that uh, not that's not even the case at all, right? I mean, it's, it's a hard cert to get, right? I did take the lab. I did take the lab. I didn't pass, of course, but it is a uh, – it is a hard cert to get. So that's one of those certs that, like, if you got a CCIE, right, you're you're good. It doesn't matter where you're from. Like, you could live in any country, right, by the way. If you have a CCIE, you're good. You know, you're, you may not get, like, top dollar anywhere, right, but you could go to anywhere. So like, let's, let's just say this, for instance. Like, if you're from India, right, and you get a CCIE, your destination is going to be, like, Ideally, right, would be like Singapore because they'll pay you quite a high dollar amount, right? Um, if if you're like from the African region, right, you know, the continent of Africa, 
you can go to Brazil, you can go to Singapore, you can go to Dubai uh, and work there as a CCIE, you know, if you're going to write your own ticket and come to places, you know. If you're from the European Union, you know, you can work in the European, European Union with that, that certification. If you're Asian, like you're Chinese, you're from Thailand, Vietnam, Philippines, Malaysia, um, Laos, Cambodia, if you get a CCIE, you definitely can uh, write your own ticket in those regards. So see, th here's the thing, right? Like a lot of those countries only have a limited amount of CCIEs, even now, right? I think some countries like China has quite a bit, I think like 2,000 or more. The U.S. has like 5,000 or so. Uh, India has probably 1,000, I think. Um, but these other small countries, like Thailand might have maybe 30. Um, Dubai or UAE might have 100. Singapore probably has 100, you know. And so you're, you know, you're going you're gonna to get, you're going to be able to get a job with, with that. I mean, it is, a, like I said, it's a long, something you have to dedicate long uh, for, like a year, that, that's usually. Um, nobody usually gets it in six months. It doesn't usually work that way around. Um, because there's, what it is is there's a factor of failing. So most people that take their lab, their CCIE lab, they fail. They fail the test. Most people do. It's like 90% of the people that take it the first time fail, right? And then they take it two or three times and they usually pass it, right? But when they do, they're, they're good to go, right? So from there I worked in, um, so I worked in the Middle East, right, for a number of years. And, uh, dur you know, during that time it was, it was great. I went, obviously I've been to Egypt, I've been to Lebanon, I've been to um, Qatar, I worked out in Qatar, Kuwait, Bahrain, UAE, all those all those places, right? And um, during that time, it was it was great. It was uh, it was a nice enjoyment. I enjoyed it, right? It's a little different than anywhere else. I mean, driving is a little you know interesting, uh, but the aspect I liked about it was you have to like go out and talk to folks, you know, all the time. Just go and talk and have a c c good conversation and just like really enjoy what they're what they're doing. And uh, it really is a lot more. I'd say friendly, or I, I'd say actually family atmosphere, right, I would say, because everybody there is looking to make money, right? They're there for a purpose, there for a reason. So it's, they have to really genuinely be um, friendly because they have to get along with everybody, right? And there's, the, you know, the benefit of that is you're going to meet lifelong friends when you're there, right? And um, so during that time, I learned... Um, System administration, I remember the first time. So Jimmy Rucker, he's a friend of mine. Jimmy Rucker told me, I asked him this, right? I said, hey, Jimmy, how do you how do you get into this server? He was talking about, of course, whack whack, which is like slash slash into a computer, right? I didn't know. And he's like, oh, yeah, type slash slash, right? What are you talking about, Jimmy? I have no idea, right? And then I remember Wayne Mells. Wayne was showed me how to do uh, Active Directory, actually. Wayne showed me how to do Active Directory, how to how to get it working. I didn't know. I had no idea, right? Um, so it was, it was a good experience for me there, actually, doing all that stuff. And um, that was, uh, it was just, so if, you, if anybody out there actually wants to work in the, in the Middle East and, um, you know, you're thinking about it, I, I would say that Dubai is a nice country, or city. It's not a country. It's a city to live in. Um, Qatar is a nice city to live in. Um, Bahrain is nice, right? 
you know, like I said, Doha, Qatar is a nice city to live in. There's a lot of nationalities in Doha, Qatar or Qatar. Uh, you'll find anything and everything you want. The The food there is pretty nice. Of course, I'm fond of shawarma, chicken shawarma, and uh, how, how they make it. So there's different versions of the shawarma, right? You have the Gulf shawarma, which is like more like a red, a red shawarma. And then they have like the Lebanese shawarma, which that really, I'm a customer of that actually, which that one I like. What they do is they take this non-bread or food, not tuberous, but is it tuberous? Yeah, it's tuberous. Or non-bread, and they put that down, and then they put, um, it's like this garlic paste, right? And they put uh, chicken, I call it, well, in Arabic, I think it's dujaid, or that's Lebanese, I think. Anyway, or no, that's Syrian, yeah. So they put chicken, dujaid, down, and then they put, um, um, so it's it's bread, then uh, a tum is what the garlic is, right, tum. And then they put um, chicken, dujaid. Then they put um, uh, uh, pickles. And finally, they put french fries. So that's a shawarma, right? That's like the real deal holy shit shawarma, by the way, right? For, for all you those individuals out there that know that. It's, uh, it's not tahini, right? I mean, I get it. Tahini's, you know, good and all that. But it's, it's not my thing. It's not my deal, right? And, uh, yeah, so... Anyway, so eating shawarma was like an awesome pastime for that. Uh, they stay out late, right? So you can, you know, you Friday night, everybody's out late talking, you know, hours. So you have a meal out there, right, when you leave. And you're going to you're gonna just eat for hours, you know? And you don't eat for hours. You just talk. You eat and you talk, right? And you have chai or tea, right, or, or whatever. It's just a, a good fun time. It's a lot different than you know, the other lifestyle in the States. Uh, okay, so from there, I, um, you know, I worked uh, in, uh, I, of course, I worked in the satellite communications uh, industry as well. So satellite communications is nothing more than like IDF, right? And a couple episodes ago, or last episode, actually, we had uh, Brandon on. So we talked a little bit about the IDirect, or the direct TV, right, which is your, your satellite antenna. So if you can imagine, you have the uh, direct TV, right, that shoots a signal to this satellite in the sky. It's in space. It's like 36,000 miles or whatever it is away, something like that, right? Um, anyway, it'll shoot a link or a signal to the satellite, right? On the other end, that satellite will take that signal and then shoot it back down to what they call a hub uh, hub site, which is this gigantic antenna. It's probably like 60, um, 60 feet in diameter, right? And on that side of the antenna, they usually have the internet connected there, right? So all of your internet comes from the, the hub side. So the receiver uh, is usually the, oh no, it's all, it is always actually the, uh, the direct TV uh, antenna at your house, right? So you're just you're sending and receiving from that endpoint, that hub, somewhere else, you know, in, in whatever part of the world, right? So that's how you get millions and millions of customers to surf the internet in remote locations at one time. Like Hughesnet, I think, is another one that does that. Um, that that's how you do that. That's how you get that done. That's a that's a big industry, actually, right? So there's a company called uh, I know I've talked about it before. I believe it's uh, 
Cytel or Transcom, I believe it is. I think it's Cytel. What they do is they actually provide customer support for customers that use direct TV, right? Uh, HughesNet, I think it is. So, well, Viasat, sorry, is the name of the uh, satellite that, or antenna that they use. And they provide uh, customer service. So that job pays roughly, I think, $13 an hour to start, and you get five weeks of training, and you're able to, to, to do that. And you can you know, learn as you go, right? If you don't know anything, get that job working uh, for Cytel. So moving on. So from there, I got into backups. That's how I actually got into backups. So when I talk about uh, backups, uh, I've actually, so I started at a nothing for, for backups. I didn't know anything about backups, any backup software, right? So I know I have a couple courses. Um, I have a course on Udemy. I have a course on Teachable. I have, I have three I have three courses on Teachable. I have three courses in Udemy. And the first one is uh, Introduction to Commvault or Udemy 10. The second one is get a job uh, in tech and make like 100K or whatever it is, which is, um, that's actually true, right? The, the course I teach you about is actually how to start to finish. So you don't know anything about IT whatsoever. You just watch the course, it's 20 hours, you're good. It is um, a little, the audio is kind of flaky a little bit. I know I need to fix that. Nevertheless, um, it, it, it's a pretty good course. It, it does, I, what I do in my courses, I leave, the, I leave the errors in. So I make an error, I make a mistake, I leave it in. Because when you, when you, when you, um, when you, crea when you create the course or you do the course yourself, you do uh, the things I'm talking about, you're going to have the same problem. And you're going to want to know, like, uh, well, how did Gary fix this, right? Because you don't want to go to the Commvault's website or Microsoft's website and ask them, how do you do this? Because you may not get the answer you're looking for. So instead, I just leave the errors in, right? I don't edit them out, leave them in. Uh, that way, you're benefiting my thinking, and because you're running this, you're going to run the same issue 1,000%. Because Commvault's not, I mean, it, it Commvault is uh, it's a piece of software that sometimes works, sometimes it doesn't when you install it and everything. It does work most of the time. I'd say 99% of the time, it does work in the production environment. Sometimes they do have some, you know, quirks or whatever, but for the most part, it's good. So that's how I learned. Uh, that's how I learned actually backups in that field. So, and then from there, I I learned Linux. Uh, so from from backups or from Commvault, I learned uh, Linux. I learned uh, SQL. I learned Oracle. I learned SharePoint. I learned Active Directory, and I learned um, Amazon uh, AWS. Or e, you know, the the cloud basically, right? And I learned other technologies like storage, like NetApp, which is a storage device, uh, OpenFiler, which is a free one. I learned uh, Data Domain, which is a EMC or Dell product. I learned uh, NetBackup, which is a competitor to Commvault. Uh, so once you know one backup system, you know them all because they all really work the same way, right? There are different differences in a couple of them, but really they all work the same way. And that has benefited me. So the, the the Cisco knowledge that I had prior to you know prior to backups actually helped me out because in uh, in NetApp you have to be able to really understand the routing. You know you have different networks. You have maybe two networks on a on a uh, comserve, 
and we could have a backup network and we could have like a production network. So you have to be able to distinguish the two. You have to be able to send traffic out to the backup network network versus the uh, production network, as well as working with uh, uh, NetApp, yeah, which is a storage a storage device basically. Right? So they have uh, they have a uh, cluster switch in there. I know a lot of this stuff is just like way over your head, right? Because you're like, what the heck are you talking about? And um, it, you know, it's just me talking about it through that kind of stuff. So anyway, um, the bottom line for this, right, is whenever you figure out, you know, you decide what you want to do with IT, right? You really you say, okay, I want to do this, right? Once you decide, you're good. But most of it's just like deciding you want to do it, right? Um, you're gonna you're gonna find in IT that um, y you're always learning. I know a couple of people on some of the other channels have said this, but it's it really is true. Actually, you're always learning in IT. You're always gonna be learning. It's it's a nonstop, never stop thing. And the reason it's like always learning because things are always changing. Things are always adapting. And to be marketable, uh, to have a skill set that's marketable uh, for the future, you you know you want always you want to always learn. And IT really makes you <laughs> learn more, right? That's 1,000%. That's, uh, that's exactly how it is. I, w I will say also, right, the, um, the, the more knowledge you have about all of this, the better chances you are going to get a job because you've already run into some of the similar issues. And companies will say, wow, you have some good experience here because you've, you've already done it. You've had those um, Friday night oh, man, I got to make this work. Otherwise, I'm losing my job on Monday because I can't have this stuff go down tonight. I need to have it work. And you'll you'll kind of have those experiences when you work in IT, and you'll have some of them not be it that extreme, but in your training environment. So the good thing is to, like, ha when you train, you know, if you make a mistake, it's fine. Just push through it and then get it because those are the stories that you, you talk about when you interview uh, for your job. That's the kind of stuff they always say, oh, yeah, okay, tell me about a time when you had an issue or whatever it is they, they tell you of how the, the, the interview goes. So, yeah, that is um, – that's good stuff there. So um, thank you very much, everybody, for listening to this podcast, and have a great day.